Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Thanks very much for tuning into us. Second captains at the Irish Times. I don't know if you really tune in to online radio, but I'm going to go with that, Murph. Yeah, no, if you're you happy tune enough in. with the, the introduction oh, to the show. Download. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. At the very start of this week, I came into the studio thinking, right, I'm going to have to, not just the studio, Murph, I came out from my bunker and I thought, I'm going to have to walk around, talk to all the people I talk to sport about, mm. and explain just why. There's no reason to fear this trip to Paris at the weekend. Ireland are going to win. There's no such thing as psychological baggage. It's a given that we're going to win, right? So I, was, I had all these arguments prepared. I thought it'd be very convincing. Every conversation that I've had, people have gone, yeah, that's, a, that's an obvious Well, point. obviously yeah. Ireland are going to Quite win. Quite clearly they're going to win. This continued on to our TV show last night, Shane Jennings and Shane Horgan. A lot of interesting chat. Finishing with, well, yeah, I mean, we're going to win. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a given. That, that's definitely going to happen. I'm almost disappointed that I haven't... You haven't had to thrash this out with anyone yet. <laughs> no, it's just, they're very short conversations. No, no, listen, I, I know that you agree with me, but yeah. all the same, hear, hear me, me out. out. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Thanks very much for all the nice messages regarding Second Captain's Live, the start of the new series last night. We had a great time. Uh, if you're getting into the spirit of Cheltenham, by the way, you'll enjoy our chat about a brilliant new documentary. Well, there he is, number one, Arco, certainly the chaser of the decade, if not the chaser of the century. The Arthur story is much, much more than a racing story. It's to do with a nation having a yearning for something, something that they can really believe in. Arkell was an enormous shot in the arm for Irish sport generally and for national pride. We all worshipped him as much as Ireland did and everybody loves a champion, just in a completely, utterly different league. He was such a genuine legend, wasn't he? I mean, he was so superior. He's the best I've ever seen. And now Arthur opening up now, like a sports car. He was invincible. He just had that aura about him. Muhammad Ali was sort of invincible for a long time. Tiger Woods was invincible for a while. And Arthur was invincible for those three or four years. It was an optimistic age in the 60s. People were just beginning to see the world through television. And you could see John F. Kennedy, you could see the Beatles, and Arkell was one of those iconic figures. Yeah, that's Arkell, the legend lives on, which was on TG Car last night, and on again on Channel 4 at 11 o'clock this evening. That's 11 o'clock Thursday night, if you're listening on Thursday. Can you enjoy that trailer? you enjoy the documentary? Yeah, it's, 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 really, it's a really nice uh, documentary, and um, it's, there's a lot of interesting things about it. One of which is, as a piece of social history, to see these, uh, this collection of quite posh Irish people from the 1960s. Uh, I found this <laughs> really interesting. The Duchess. Come on. Uh, the, the owner of Arkell, the Duchess. I mean, what a character. Mm. I, I don't mean a character in the sort of Begbie sense, you know. I don't think she was, she was that type of character. But, you know, uh, I thought it was great. And, and to see the, the worship to, that was attached to this horse. Although, you know, I can understand it myself. Worshipping a horse? I remember Cheltenham last year and... Uh, 
Yeah, I remember the circumstances in which I watched that. It was it was a tough time for me personally. But Sprinter Sacre on. Sprinter Sacre. I, you know, I, in a way, I, I felt turned around the whole year for me. Yeah? Yeah, Sprinter it was, Sacre. you know, like a, fa- a fairy tale of New York, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bit like that. I think the odds on Sprinter Sacre were a bit more like four to one on. Yeah, it wasn't as though you pluck one out of the sky there. No. I've but, got a tip. No, no, but what I'm what I'm saying is when when a, a horse comes along with magical powers, it is amazing how a human heart can respond to, to an animal like that. I see. Arkel had that, had those magic powers. Mm. Mr. Ed would have had them, certainly. Of course. Well, yeah. I, well, look, sea biscuit. I mean there was, uh, all, just, all the just, major horses. Just seriously, on the on the the, the time form, you know this I'm thing where only they ever rank, serious when I talk about Mr. Edkin. Where they where they rank uh, racehorses through time. This is hilarious. Is that like Sorry, I look, say that, what, what is this? Time form own some kind when of. When you say rate the horses, uh, every I mean we do this. We did this in TV with the greatest Irish sports people of all time. But you're talking about something a bit more scientific. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about um, a Bill James type uh, statistical index the, r- ranking you're, you're, and rating. You're basically given a number. You it's not oh well you know we could sit here and. Debate all day, the relative... No, no, we can't. Just look at the two numbers attached to these two horses and whoever has a higher number is a better horse. Top-rated horses on chase courses. And this is all-time, Owen. Horse number one, Arkel, born in 1957, rating 212. Huge number sounds, of points. Sounds good. That's I mean, a lot I of points. Know. I don't know, but I mean, it um, sounds impressive. I mean, if you, if you consider, I think the, the record points total in the Premier League is, is something like 90, 95. Yeah, 95. 212 is huge. <laughs> uh, Flying Bolt, uh, born two years after Arkel, is number two. Sprinter Sacra, number three. And he was born only in 2006, Owen. Which That's a wonder horse. I guess means he must have, he must be, he's only eight. <laughs> He's sharp this one, isn't he? Uh, and Millhouse, Millhouse, Arkell's uh, great, great adversary, is ranked number four. So that's a, an indication of the level of competition at the time there in the mid We'll chat to the movie's director, Luke McManus, a little bit later on. But first up, let's talk Six Nations with Reggie Cargan and Victor Costello in studio. Guys, thanks very much for calling into us. No problem. Mm-hmm. 15 Leinster players, just the 15 in this setup as two proud Leinster men. How close are you to the, the, the dream of 23 Leinster men representing the country? It's not Ready. far away now. There's only a few more uh, uh, red and white jerseys to get rid of and then we'll have the full contingent. So uh, then that's the dream. It seems as though uh, there's only so much that anybody can criticise Joe Schmidt for at the moment. I guess when you lose matches is when these things come into particularly sharp focus. Yeah, I suppose. But I mean... To be fair to Joe Schmidt, I think he is picking on form, and I think that's always been the way that he operates. Um, you know, the, I, I can't imagine there will be too many arguments. I mean, the, 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 there have been situations in the past where, certainly in our day, myself and Victor's day, there would have been a lot of Munster players uh, dominating the selection. Um, and at the time, it was, again, based on form and, and the right to be there. So I think, for you know, if you look through that entire team... I, I guess squad, Simon Zebo and a few others would... would feel that they probably should be in informed, but it's not going to happen in this championship for Zebo. We'll see in the longer term. Just on the two sets of 23 players that we're looking at here in front of us, Victor, the general assumption is that France have better players than Ireland, that maybe Ireland will be more organised and will have more of a plan, but that France individually are more talented. Would you go along with that? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I, I think when you talk about plans there is, is the exact word. Uh, throughout this competition, this management team that Ireland have... Every uh, part of that management team has shown in the team's performance, be it defence, be it rolling malls with John Plumtree. But yet, if you look at a video work for Ireland, you couldn't really pick an area where you can attack them. And that itself, with the mental video work that goes through in, in games and preparation with referees, etc., etc., is huge. And in this day and age, on the fifth game of the, of the competition uh, for Ireland, to going into a game where they still have lots to show it in terms of their, their game plans and their training. I, I think it's huge. And <clears throat> regarding the team itself, yes, you know, there are, there's huge talent in that French team. We all know what they're like when they, when they let loose, if they're under pressure and they just relax a little bit when they're at their best. Uh, but from an Irish point of view, I think Ireland have you know, a firepower there and intelligence on the pitch, a thinking team, to really overcome any French threat at the weekend. It's interesting, yeah, that you say that the teams haven't found a way to attack them. England did win, so what did England do that France might look at? What England bring is power and pace. And power and pace is their game, always has been, and with a a kicker. Uh, In that game, Owen Farrell, I think, outplayed Johnny Sexton. 
Owen Farrell is not as good a player as Johnny Sexton and hasn't been, but he had a good game that day and it yeah. made a difference. But the one thing about this weekend, if you talk about power and pace, from an Irish point of view, if you had another P, which is passion, and going over to France in our day, and any day, uh, I know Tony Ward spoke about it in the paper recently as well, there's a fear of a French. And going over to Paris, uh, you're always thinking, well, this isn't going to work out well. But there's so many subplots here that that area of doubt is really down the list. You know, if you, if you, obviously, we know about the O'Driscoll's last game, but so many subplots for these players and the management uh, that I think get them over the line in, in terms of performance. Reggie, individually, individual talent-wise... Yeah, I think it's a bit of a misconception to say that the French players individually are better than the Irish players. If you actually go through them and look at them, I mean, Bastereau, for me, is very highly overrated. I mean, I think he's been very lucky to maintain his position in the French team for as long as he has. I mean, he brings one thing to the party, and that's it. Give him the ball, and he'll try and bosh it up and uh, use that power to get through. But the way defences are organised now, um, and in particular the Irish defence, that just doesn't work anymore. You've got to have what we used to see, certainly in myself and Victor's day growing up, watching the French flair and skills and elusive running, that's all gone. I mean, that's, that's gone from the game. Again, if you look at the likes of, uh, you know, Pape in the second row versus O'Connell, I mean, O'Connell wins that one in the front row, kept Keane Healy um, and, and, and Mike Ross and Best going up against Rosesky, Domingo and Mass. I mean, I, I think the Irish players are, are better than them, you know. Um, Jamie Heaslip is playing exceptionally well and, and you know, Peter O'Mahony has been the standout player so far in the tournament um, you know I, I, I wouldn't buy into the, the the thought process that the French individually are better than the Irish at all You touched on the occasion in Paris and how sometimes you get the feeling this isn't going to go right for us Victor Peter Manny is back in this team and uh, as alluded to by Reggie he's been probably our standout performer missed the last game out are you comfortable that he can handle this kind of occasion because he strikes as the kind of person as he's come through the ranks who seems just not to get phased yeah, we spoke initially about the Leinster bias at the moment in terms of the selection. Um, Peter Manny, I think, single-handedly has dragged that Munster team through their transition and, you know, really restored pride in, in the red jersey down there and deserves, uh, has really come on uh, leaps and bounds over last year in his international career. And, you know, he's a really abrasive player. He fits that back row uh, unit really, really well. And, you know, I think, you know, talk about occasions away from France and I know everyone O'Driscoll is, is the mainstay in, main, in, 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 the, in the media these days yeah. but what O'Driscoll his greatest legacy would be what he did with the players around him and he dragged them up to a certain standard so he maintains through his career that if you want to be in an Irish team you want to win in an Irish jersey and all of those players now who actually lived to his expectation like Rob Carney he said Peter Manny you know Paul O'Connell all the way through they now have a chance to kind of show this and galvanise going forward and say right you're leaving but, you know, you're going to be missed, but we're going to take your legacy on. And Peter Manny is the kind of person who you think will be doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and he's demanded this in the Irish jersey. So that's why, in terms of occasion, I think the bigger occasion is this Irish team this weekend, not Stade Francais or not the French team. Interesting. Reggie? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think Manny, you know, he, he brings that sort of quiet, really, in, in a way. I mean, he's not, you don't see him in the picture the way you might see O'Driscoll and O'Connell and all these guys rallying the troops, let's say. But, I mean, it's going on the whole time. And then his work rate is phenomenal uh, as he's on the pitch. He's constantly thinking of the next stage and the next phase and, and what's going to go. So, I mean, I think he's going to be hugely important to Ireland having success at the weekend. The specifics of the team, there weren't. it's been such a solid selection through the last few games. There weren't going to be many changes. The one that was suggested was maybe Owen Redden, who did very well coming off the bench last week, coming in to the starting line. If that hasn't happened, is that the right call that Conor Murray maintains his place? Um, well, I suppose if you look at it over the course of the campaign and the fact that Murray was there for the vast majority of it and, um, you know, he brings a, a certain physicality to the game which might be necessary against the French, uh, you would say that it is the right call. But I'd have to say that on Redden last week, I, I thought uh, his service and, and, you know, the speed that he brings and the link that he seems to have with Johnny Sexton is, is very good and, and there is that understanding. So um, Owen can feel a little bit hard done by maybe, but, I mean, you've got to, weigh it up with the fact that he had an injury and that he is coming back into the squad and that Con Conor Murray has been there for the long haul and uh, I think, you know, just edges it uh, on this call. I think that selection was made though purely because Redden's actually better off the bench than Conor Murray is. Conor Murphy, Murray brings that power, he's got a great pass, uh, Redden can really inject uh, speed into a game. 
However, you know, if you look at the way Danny Kerr played against the French over there for England, he was man of the match. He did an absolute stormer that day, even though they took him off. Uh, you know, he's obviously the, the English lost that game, but for the 60 minutes he was on, he was just unbelievable. And he plays the same way as Redden. But I think the way Joe Smith is thinking, if you start with Conor Murray, you've got a big impact sub in, in Redden to come on, if yeah. it needs be. Ian Madigan comes in to the bench, or onto the bench, I should say, which is an interesting one. We heard earlier on Joe Schmidt explaining this and saying, look, he just has, uh, he can cover more positions for me than Paddy Jackson. I, I rate Paddy and he would have started last week had Johnny been injured. But in, th- in this selection, Ian Madigan comes in. Does that tell you anything about the possible game plan? Because we know one thing about Joe Schmidt's Ireland team, and that is that he uses his substitutes. So you can imagine mm. Madigan will probably be playing at some stage. Well, I think I, I found that very interesting, and uh, I was delighted to see it as well, to be honest with you. I was at the game in Twickenham, and, um, you know, let's be honest, everybody knows it wasn't the greatest day for Johnny. Things didn't go quite the way he would have wanted. Um, and I think there's no doubt, in my mind anyway, there's no doubt that if there had been a viable alternative on the bench, let's say Ron O'Gara, for example, was still around, he would have been on after 50 minutes. Um, and it was obvious in the fact that that substitution wasn't made, that Joe doesn't quite have the faith in Paddy Jackson that he would uh, to come in there and do the job that was necessary in Twickenham. Uh, with Madigan, I felt that if Madigan had been on the bench in a game like the game in Twickenham where it needed someone with something different, something that can, somebody that can just spark something from nothing. And that's what makes Madigan so unique and so exciting to watch. He can turn a game from nothing. Um, he's an incredible turn of pace and he can find a gap and, you know, he, he controls things quite well. So for him to be on the bench for this game tells me that should something happen with Johnny Sexton, for example, an injury or, God forbid, something like that happens, that he'd have more confidence in bringing Ian Madigan Despite in. Despite his lack of international experience, it's not as though... Yeah, but I mean, you know, that. that obviously isn't in Joe's mindset because uh, Ian hasn't been playing all, all the time at 10 for Leinster because of the fact that Gopperth is there, yet he warrants a place on the bench for the biggest game of the year yeah. to win a championship. So, I mean, that tells you how Joe's thinking. And there's That's a familiarity there as well. You yeah. know, let's not forget that Joe Smith coached in France as well, so he knows the French players inside out. So, again, it goes back to that game plan he's looking at. You know, Derry mentioned the fatigue factor with Johnny Sexton as well. You know, he's played a lot of games up to now. Uh, people are ready to point the finger at him after, after the Twickenham game in terms of his uh, fatigue, having to leave the squad, etc. So maybe Joe Smith's thinking, well, we need a running out half here. Johnny has got 60 minutes in him and Ian will take the rest of it. You'd like to think Sexton, though, is going to put in a performance here. And he, he, he was very good last time out against Italy. But just... I don't know if you'd agree with this, but just the idea that he's over there, he's in Paris, he probably wants to show the French public how he feels the game should be played. He's clearly not massively happy at Racing Metro, and certainly he says when he's losing, he's not happy. Would you expect that this is the kind of thing, he's a mentally tough kind of guy, and this is the kind of game that will really drive Sexton to show them what he's all about? I've no doubt, you know, and that's why we spoke about the subplots that are there. Um, you know, he wants to prove in front of his new home uh, how good he is against people he'd know well, both with them and against them. But, you know, sometimes the body might be willing, you know, and, uh, you know, that fatigue, particularly for professionals, being a long campaign, it's now at the end, you know, you go into camp. One game, though, surely just one more game, you can get 80 minutes out of your body, uh, no? Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. But, you know, if it's a pacey game that, uh, that uh, Joe Smith wants to play against the French, you know, Reggie spoke about them boshing up the middle. Uh, the French don't react well when things are ran at them, you know, balls are ran at them. You know, they doubt themselves, the crowd starts getting them and it all falls apart. And I say but that's what Joe Smith wants to do, constant pressure, moving that ball around. And Ian Madigan will be the, the ideal second out half. I, I see it slightly different with Johnny Sexton. I don't see the fatigue element. I understand that he's played a lot of games and there's those types of things and little knocks and injuries that he's picked up. But for me... I think it's more a mental fatigue problem with Johnny Sexton uh, in that I think he's frustrated. I think yeah. he's incredibly frustrated in Racing Metro. He's come from a culture where, as we spoke earlier about the likes of Brian O'Driscoll and O'Mahony uh, dragging players along and for, you know forcing better performances out of them. He's come from that culture where uh, there's no tolerance of um, below-par performances. And I think Sexton is used to that environment and he's frustrated because clearly in Racing Metro that isn't the, that isn't the case I mean that's just not the mindset of there's the no players over there. really, there's no yeah. culture and it's a bit mercenary in, in a lot of ways and I think he's more frustrated than anything else so he'll you can also see that he enjoys being back involved in the Irish squad and being back here and being you know around Irish people and I think you know, I have no concerns about his performance this weekend against France. Yeah, interesting point that Owen met as well there, just about the, the style of play that he wants to show as well, because obviously 
when he's over in France, I mean, he's actually spoken about the constant up and unders he has to kick with Racing Metro. Do you think that's an important thing as well, that he wants to show that this is the style of rugby that brings out the best in him as well? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it seems to me very clear that the players are comfortable with the style that Joe Schmidt has brought into the uh, entire squad and how he wants them to play. And they look comfortable within that. And they're in order to be comfortable within a system like that and to be able to play the way you want, you have to have faith and confidence in the players who are around you to know that you've got the backup and support of them to be able to do it. Uh, and that seems clearly the case to me. And again, I talk about frustration. I watched him in Twickenham very, very closely. And he was the most frustrated man on the pitch because he knew you know, that what he was doing was not contributing to the level that he wanted to for those around him. So players play for those around them and they play for their coach. And there's a clear respect there for, for both of those things within this Irish squad at the moment. And I think that's what will come out on Saturday. And for, it's for the John. exact opposite in the French team. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there is no doubt about is that. It a, uh, is it going to be an expansive game plan, though? Or will we see Sexton playing the way that he played, the way that the team played against Wales? Maybe might that be the most similar comparison that we're not going to see quite as many of these uh, these fancy training ground moves from Schmidt will be a little bit more um, what was a fairly basic looking game plan but very effective game plan against Wales yeah I think I mean anyone going to France in any year you just don't want to give them the ball particularly early in a game so you try and suffocate them the line has been going well in, from, from a large point of view but I can see a bit of a kicking game in this yeah. at the start uh, everyone knows the French team are under pressure the, the, the media are at them uh, their fans are at them so uh, highlighting that from an Irish point of view in the first 20 minutes would be hugely important. But then again, there's so much this Irish team want to give. You know, It's almost like 80 minutes isn't going to be enough for this Irish team. There's been a huge build-up. A lot of stuff have worked, has worked out for them. Uh, and you know, they're a confident side. And as Reg said, a happy team is, is a winning team. And clearly Johnny Sexton loves playing with his uh, Irish team being back there. And I, I just think that you know, from an Irish point of view... Any sort of game plan could happen here, and, and the great thing about this 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 uh, Irish team is they think on their feet. It's a, it's a team full of thinkers. They can adjust accordingly. I sat there in the Welsh game thinking, "What is Johnny Sexton doing kicking ball away?" As everyone did, the, and all of a sudden it fell into place. Yeah, know? but the thing about it as well, the way Joe Schmidt coaches is that he coaches what they call heads up rugby. So it's yes, there will be a plan to play territory and kick the ball, and you know, in the past you would never want to kick the ball away against the French because they're so strong and powerful in their back three that they could run from anywhere and they could attack and cause problems and score effectively mm. from even inside their own 22. But the way this Irish defence is organised and they're so well organised, they have no fear of kicking the ball back to the French to pin them back and then use their organised defensive line to stop them getting back at them. So that's not a fear anymore. But the point is they will do that to a degree, but they have the ability that if a gap or an opportunity or some space opens up, they can change have it the, Have in a they moment. got that though? Because Shane Horgan made the point a couple of weeks ago on the, the RTE coverage and subsequently here that he feels that maybe because the players trust Joe Schmidt's plan so much that they're actually not quite adjusting enough, that they're going... He's talking specifically about the England game, mm. that there were times when maybe they actually had to just veer away a little bit, but because... They know this guy is so smart. They're they're doing exactly what he lays down during the week. But what you have to remember about the England game, which is you know tantamount to everything we're talking about mm. here, is that things that they were trying to do, like kicking for touch and playing that territory game and getting their chasing line, didn't work because kicks were misguided. They didn't find the touch mm. they were supposed to get. So if you know the first part of your plan doesn't work, you can't instigate the rest yeah. of the plan. So. Um, that that was fundamental to things going wrong in Twickenham in that the main plan A route wasn't happening because certain things didn't go. If the Sexton way they had have. a really good yeah. game, we would have yeah. probably yeah. won the match. But absolutely, it almost went to plan because the first scrum was a huge victory to, yeah. to the Irish team. Absolutely, and, you know, and that's exactly the way this Irish team they set a, a stall out, a stall out very early. That gives them the confidence. And you know, I know what you're saying regarding what Shane Horgan will, will be thinking about the dominant uh, effect of Joe Smith's plan for a game, but you know, it goes back to. You look at the likes of O'Driscoll there, you know, Carney, you know, they will run what they see eventually. But in the first 20 minutes of every game, it's very, very tight. And I expect this Irish team to bring their game plan to uh, the French team because they're vulnerable. And when they're vulnerable, there'll be gaps. And, you know, somebody has to go through those gaps, whether it's Keane Healy, Peter Manny, or a back line or a move that comes out of the, the next phase. And a key part to, to that is that the Irish team will be fully focused, whatever type of game plan will be fully focused on putting the pressure back on the French because they know that if they can play the French out of the game within the first 20 minutes, given what seems to be 
a certain lack of discipline within the squad with actions by some of the players, uh, people maybe talking out of school a little bit, pick reaction to the referee, selections that have been made, and, and, and what looks like uh, a disbelief amongst the players in the plan that the coach is trying to put in there. If they pile that pressure on for the first 25 minutes of the game from an Irish point of view, the French can just react in such a bad way they can they can pretty much throw the toys Pete out of is back in the team though which is interesting maybe well he had to be yeah you know, you're I mean, not going to keep him out of it in, no. in for, for that it wasn't well not for a game this important yeah Gael Fiku is in Swarzewski Remy Tales at out half uh, is this looking like possibly the strongest side they've picked um, not necessarily not necessarily I wouldn't think so I mean I think it's it is what it is. I think it's basically what he's left with in terms of he's been through the uh, different players at yeah. this stage and looked up and down and everything else. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's. But you're not blown away by the. No, I'm not. I mean, you know, as I said to you, I mean, I, I don't see that midfield flair that I, you know, um, you know, if you had if you had the likes of a Fofana, for example, in the centre, he is an incredible player, and you know, he can add that bit of skill and flair that. Just from nothing, you know, I, I, I can see that. Um, I'm like I said, I'm not impressed with Bastro in the centre, and I mean, I just don't see the areas. I, I'm, I'm struggling to find where this French team can actually cause problems for the Irish team. Well, they cause problems. I mean, the, the most dangerous French team is the French team that doesn't believe in their coach. They're unhappy, so they go back to training park mentality. Let's just throw the ball around and see what happens. And that's when they're at the most dangerous. And that's where Ireland could struggle this weekend because they will do something unprecedented that they haven't done all campaign. And all of a sudden, they've got the skills, they've got the flair. And realistically, I'd be very, very positive for the Irish team this weekend. But, you know, an unpredictable French side that are under pressure, don't necessarily trust their coach, getting grief off their fans... If they decide to just go out to Marley Park, effectively in France, yeah, and just pull the ball around, that's when they're at their worst, our best. I, I I understand what you're saying, but that would have been more of a thing of the past, though. You know, in in my opinion, they think you know. We spoke about the fact that these players would play for Joe Schmidt. The French team are not going to play for their coach. What they're saying to themselves is, we need to go out there and play to show what we can do. Uh, and then when that happens, there's always the danger that individuals will try and do things without a plan and and the rest of the players around them don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And if guys start going off as individuals and doing that type of thing, um, then there's a problem. And in terms of the Marley Park throw the ball around thing, that might have worked in the yeah, past against teams that weren't organised, but the Irish defence is so well organised, I well, just well don't they see are, that would work. The instinct of a French player is when a guy goes through something that wasn't scripted, they'll be on his shoulder left and right. And that's when you get through defences. You know? And it's happened so many times in Paris, in the spring, hard ground, good weather. Um, you know, they have this inbuilt skill all through life. Our, this Irish team is a real working team. They've worked so hard to get to this stage. There's a there's a couple of areas of passion this weekend with Brian's last game. Mm. Um, you know, but the unpredictability of the French is, is extremely dangerous. And I, I firmly believe that it's in their DNA that if they're annoyed and they just throw game plans out the window, that is what they're probably <laughs> both seen that uh, yeah. up close and personal. Any happy memories from playing in Paris? Um, <laughs> yeah, probably can't well, speak about those unfortunately not <laughs> on the field um, we certainly ran very close in 98 and lost by two points and yeah. that was that was an amazing occasion uh, I wasn't playing in 2000 that's probably my happiest memory is watching that game and, and, and seeing uh, how the lads performed and Drick obviously exploding onto the world scene but it's not a place Ireland go to and get results too often so there aren't too many happy memories to report from Victor yeah, I mean, we gave him a good run in '98, and you know, any time playing in Stade France, I played in Parc de France. Shows a, I'm showing my age now, but anyway, um, that was great to be play there. Um, you know, the occasion itself is fantastic. There, you've got the cockerels on the ground, you have got the bands playing. You know, does so it get you going? Does it make yeah, you more I mean, nervous? It, it, it can be, it can be intimidating, you know. Right. Um, but you know, it, it, we spoke earlier in, in this show about the Irish point of view and, and I just think this weekend there's so much if you look at last weekend there's so much pride in this team so much hope for the future regret of Brian leaving and you know all of that building up throughout the week the, the show that was on last weekend let's not forget Brian O'Driscoll like flirted with French teams over the years they absolutely adore him over there they're absolutely afraid of him on the pitch but they worship him and you know he's always played well against France because he knows he has this confidence of what they think of him. So they stand off him, you know. Ultimately, and I firmly believe in 2007 if he'd played that game, even though he was injured, that Ireland would have got the Grand Slam, you know, yeah. because just his presence alone. So that itself, the work that this team has done, what they're demanding from each other, uh, the standards they've set, 
I, I think this is going to be all about Ireland this weekend, and I really do think this French team don't have it to to to, to front up to this Irish. That's team. an Ireland win, Reggie. Well, the only thing I would add to that would be, you know, if the French have done their homework, which you'd presume as a professional outfit they should have done, then they'd look at the English game mm. and they'll analyse that to the nth degree and realise that what happened in the centres with Burrell and 12 Trees was that they rushed up. A lot of the time offside, if I'm honest about it, watching the game, I felt they were offside quite a bit, but they got away with it. Um, but they rushed up and closed down that space extremely quickly and they closed down Johnny Sexton's options very, very quickly. Um, if the French learn from that and do something similar, um, Ireland need to have another answer, another option to that. Now, no doubt they probably will because they'll have learned as well from the English experience, but that's what that, that really is what it's about. If they stand off and they allow the likes of the wraparound passes that we saw where O'Driscoll is running dummy lines with Sexton and Darcy's, uh, you know, you know, shadowing all of that and, and finding gaps and creating gaps. If they stand back and allow that to happen, France are in trouble. There's no doubt about yeah. that. So their only option is to pretty much close the space down as quickly as they can from a defensive point but of view. And try to put for, oh, I do definitely think Ireland are going to win. Yeah. All right, good to hear, Victor Reggie. Great to have you in. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just. The bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 pm tonight. 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 The point about Redden and Sexton's understanding is interesting that the guys were talking about there because I was at the Italy game and I noticed at one point in the early enough in the second half the Ireland were awarded a penalty in their own 22 and Johnny Sexton was screaming at the guys inside him. It's just, what, what, what's he screaming? Inside and outside. Mm. Uh, Sexton himself would admit that he, he screams quite a lot at the other players but there was clearly a specific purpose and I didn't have a clue what it was until... Suddenly Redden takes his quick tap, tap penalty, flings it out Sexton, Sexton throws another pass. They're up, they're about 40, 50 metres. It was Dave Carney, or possibly Trimble, up, mm. up on that wing. Ultimately, they scored a try out of it, but a few phases later, and a lot of things happened in between. But it was just interesting to see, this is clearly, Johnny Sexton was the only person in that stadium who realised that Owen Redden was about to take a quick yeah, tap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, like, that's the, the telepathy there. But I mean, at, at the same time, I think you know Murray and himself have a pretty good understanding as well. And it's a case of the more games they play. And you can see them playing, you know, 50 or 60 more times for Ireland together. Um, Intimidating venue, though, Paris, yeah, according well, to Victor. Well, I mean, that, I mean, Victor is one of the all-time great ball-carrying forwards we've ever produced in this country. And yet he seems to have been spooked, to a large degree, by uh, some poultry, um, which was interesting to me. He, he, the cockerel, the cockerel really, get, really got to him in the Stade de France. And Not the trumpets. The trumpets. I mean, 80,000 fans. I mean, if you're going down the line, I mean, you shouldn't be intimidated by 80,000 fans. They can't do anything to you. They, they're not going to encroach on the field. Um, but, I mean, they're there and they're making a lot of noise, so I suppose that's understandable. But, you know, what is it particularly about the cockerel? You know, if he were to... You know, if the cockerel was to attack you... I mean, Victor... Well, yeah, but, I mean, Victor is supreme athlete or at least he, you know I'm, well he's still but they flap is, but about if you're Victor Costello you get the ball you're about to rampage forward mm. as Victor Costello would have done Emil Entomac aiming for Emil Entomac's and then shoulder. suddenly here comes this wildly flapping cockerel which frankly shouldn't be out on the field mm. flapping in the face of Victor Costello like well, it's a tiny an... feathered dinosaur yeah I mean I think I think you know it might you know uh, discombobulate Victor but yeah, I mean, there's to, an almost lock on there to intimidate I mean they are they're like they're dinosaurs as well, can't aren't they? Yeah, I mean, if you if you were to, I mean, just look at their little heads, mm. their evil little eyes. Yeah, I wouldn't like one of them coming at me. God, can you actually do something quite intimidating? Second captain's football coming up later on. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> it's three and a half years a long time to spend in jail. I uh, guess it depends. Well, uh, personally, I wouldn't want to spend <laughs> three and a half hours in jail then. No. Any uh, honest, three and a half years for tax evasion. I'm trying to well. think, is there a single person in Ireland... 
over the last six or seven years. He's gone to jail for any time, for anything. I mean, billions just disappearing here and there. What's, and, you know. well, like, what's coming to the world? Someone could go to... Could go to jail simply for stealing money from the government. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it, but that's what that's what's happened here. Uli Honus uh, trading away his secret uh, bank account in Switzerland, trading on the stock market, making money, losing money, but not paying tax on any of his transactions. <laughs> uh, ends up owing a lot of money, gets caught. You know, some hacker hacked, uh, hacked into you know Swiss bank accounts, sold it to the German taxman. I have a Microsoft Excel file that may be of interest to you. It contains the. Uh, you know, names and addresses of a bunch of secret, uh, or not secret, Swiss backends, which I suppose are by definition, you know, quite it's a discreet banking system. You know, you don't expect you, <laughs> the fact that you've got an account there to end up in the hands of the taxman. The very last person you want to find out about such an arrangement. Hacker sold all this stuff to the taxman who uh, was able to go and start auditing some people. Uh, Udi Hernes made his declaration, but... Too late. I'm that person afraid. was like the the hacker was like the golf fan who sits at home and sees you know Patrick Harrington's ball move forward well, by a pimple. He is in fairness. You know. I, I'm not trying to compare <laughs> Patrick Harrington's crying. Um, well, no, a misplaced ball. I to, think in fairness too, said hacker, anonymous hacker. I mean, he's done the German state a great service here. He's done the German state some service. I'm sure he's made a lot of money for himself, uh, undermined confidence in the Swiss banking system. Yeah, uh, but I suppose. Uh, whether that's good or bad is, is in the eye of the public. We're not actually really going to talk that much about it, Ernest. I just I've just seen the news, oh. and I wanted to express my yeah. um, look a bit surprised. my amazement. I mean, I don't. What are we to, going to talk? About? I don't want to say it's disapproving. I mean, I, you know, I I, I do feel a bit sorry for this. Each just a system to their own, I suppose, is what you would say. Yeah, I, I don't understand. Like you know, tax evasion is fine with me. It's just uh, it's obviously not something we seem to take as seriously in in Ireland as as they do in Germany. So, what are we going to be talking about? Champions League, I guess. Yeah, Champions League, yeah. Champions ah, let's League. talk more Uli Honest. We'll talk a bit of Uli I've decided we're talking bit more of Champions League. later on. It sounds a couple of big Premier League games this weekend. Um, True enough. Arsenal Spurs, Man United, uh, Liverpool. That'll be out for you later on today. If you're getting caught up in the spirit of Cheltenham over the last couple of days, there is a great documentary you should watch on Channel 4 tonight called Arkle the Legend Lives On. Its director, Luke McManus, is with us in studio. Luke, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, we've seen the big Irish contingent over at Cheltenham this week and the the usual kind of crack that goes with that. A lot of people have taken the week off work. If they're not heading over, they're watching it somewhere and um, probably betting their shirt on it in, in, in certain cases. But would you track a lot of this fascination with Cheltenham and the Irish-English rivalry back 50 years or so to Arkell? It does seem like that's the case, that this Gold Cup victory in 1964 that the documentary celebrates the 50th anniversary of was the moment where Cheltenham was born. Cheltenham as in the cultural phenomenon, the event that's bigger than just four days of racing or three days as it was back then. It sort of coincided with a lot of things. Um, the rise of television, which is kind of a sub-theme in the documentary. You know, for the, it was the only time the Gold Cup was ever run on a Saturday and that was mm-hmm. done by the BBC to try and to get a massive TV audience. So the hype around this race became you know enormous, particularly in Ireland. And it's something that really came quite clear to us when we were researching the documentary that in in a lot of ways Arkell was the Ray Houghton you know of his generation or the Brian O'Driscoll of his generation he was this sort of very emblematic kind of figurehead for a sort of Irish ambition and just the classic Irish-English battles that we've seen over the last 50 years. Arkell was maybe the first of them. Is that in part because there wasn't much else going on in a sporting context? We weren't, rugby wasn't what it is today, obviously. Our football team weren't qualifying for tournaments. It had been eight years at that stage since uh, Ronnie Delaney had won that gold medal in the Olympics. Maybe there was a vacuum there that Arkell filled. I think without a doubt. I think that's absolutely the case, yeah. Uh, There was one quote, we tried to get Terry Wogan for the documentary, but I couldn't get past his very avaricious agent but um, he wrote an art Terry Rogan was a journalist at the time and wrote a piece saying you know that the Ireland were, Irish were very used to, to defeat you know uh, you know we were good at defeat because we were used to it and then Arkell came along uh, not just won once but kept winning over and over again and it was this extraordinary kind of chink of sporting light in a pretty dark time for sport definitely yeah. So take us into the build up then to Cheltenham you said there was a lot of hype how big a figure was Arkell in Ireland before that was it a stars born at that Cheltenham or had there been a fair idea that actually Arkell would become this iconic the sporting figure I think in 63 uh, he did announce himself in no uncertain terms by winning the Broadway chase 
Uh, I'm not sure what that race is called now, but, you know, very convincingly, and it was kind of a novices race or a young horses race at Cheltenham. It was then later that year at the Hennessy Gold Cup at Newbury that the first of these Titanic struggles took place, which was him taking on Millhouse. Now, Millhouse is this kind of uh, Sonny Liston to Arkell's Ali type of figure. You know, he was absolutely the dominant horse in England at the time. Top trainer, and, you know, Very English. I mean, cut glass accent, Sandhurst, educated <laughs> uh, horse. Well, actually not, funnily enough, from Nace. That was one of the ironic things about Millhouse. He was almost the reverse Andy Townsend. He was the horse that went to England and became more English than English themselves. This is a point that's, that's actually made in it that, uh, that a lot of the times the horses were sent off or sold off so young that they couldn't even be claimed as Irish. They were... They were passed off as English and became English champion horses. We couldn't. We were actually so undeveloped and backward that we were incapable even of raising racehorses to a level where they could compete as Irish horses. Well, indeed. Well, we could raise them, but we couldn't own them. That was the problem, is that we could produce a horse. But when a horse gets sold at three, no one had the dough to, to buy the horses. And it, it became this thing of the trainer was Irish the owner, even though she had an extraordinarily posh accent and her voice is really quite remarkable. <laughs> she, I think, yeah, I think we play a bit of her. I mean, it's a good, it's literally the deepest voice I've ever heard. <laughs> a man or a woman. I know she's like, I was saying earlier, she's like two octaves lower than Roy Keane when he's annoyed, you know, it's almost, uh, but it's an uh, extraordinary, uh, extraordinary voice. Uh, but the Duchess of Westminster and then the Jockey Pats half. So there was this kind of what Omar Hurt they call the Arkle Quartet, you know, this sort of team of, of Irish people. The Millhouse's jockey, ironically, was Irish as well, Willie Robinson. And Millhouse, yeah. as a, the horse, was was bred here and then sent to England and was owned by a man called Gollings. So, for whatever reason, and I'm still not entirely sure, it did become Ireland versus England. It did become about the champion of England and the the Irish upstart, as one of our contributors calls him. So it was. It's a classic underdog story, I guess. And the underdog won in this case, which presumably was fairly warmly received at the time. It, he, he did. He lost in Newbury in '63. So Millhouse did beat Arkell. And, you know, the natural order of things prevailed. Like, Milhouse was the champion, Arkle was the pretender, and Milhouse won. So it was then at Cheltenham that Arkle got a second a chance for revenge. And then that was when that race... People knew Arkle was an improving horse. But I suppose nobody could quite predict how that race happened and how it went in the end. What I found kind of interesting about this is just to be reminded again of the unlimited capacity that people apparently have for projecting human traits on a racehorse. Well, that's another thing that tickled my fancy a little bit. Yeah, in that someone is saying it's, it's comparing not strictly Arkle to, to Gregory Peck. <laughs> you know, he struts around the parade <laughs> ring, and everybody's looking he at him. And he knows and he's been looked at, and I'm kind of thinking. But you do see the footage of Arkle walking around the parade ring, and he is eyeballing every single person. His head is at a right angle. He's he's going walking around the, the little circle, and he's looking at everybody in the eye. He. He took race cards out of people's hands. He let little girls ride in his back. He drank Guinness. You know, it. it, it, it he drank Guinness. He drank famously drank Guinness. Yeah, but and you know when he was spotted drinking Guinness, he uh, the Guinness marketing guys immediately sent him up, set him up with a lifetime supply. You know, they didn't miss a trick either. You know, so it became this kind of big thing that Arkle was the Guinness drinking horse. Um, so is it anthropomorphizing? Is that yeah. the word, or is there? Animals that intelligent do have personalities. You know, it struck me very clearly when the trainers are talking about a stable mate, Flying Bolt, what an unpleasant piece well, of work he, he was. was like. He was like a kind of Luis Suarez figure, Flying Bolt. Uh, the way that he was being described was just, uh, I mean, he was... But you're, saying, you're now saying that Luis Suarez is in some way a negative influence in sport and, you know, we all know he was stitched up by Man United <laughs> in the most disgraceful way. Like, and as for a little nibble every now and then, well, you know, who's going to hold the, it against uh, him? The, the More of a John Terry, I'd like to think, or Robbie Savage. He, he was Bolt. a deeply unpleasant character in mean, Flying Bolt, according to everybody who, who knew him, read him, although a fine athlete. Um, <laughs> But he, I mean, this guy, the, I mean, this guy, this horse was was you know just a horse owned by a really rich duchess. You know how how did a duchess's plaything excite the emotions of so many Irishmen? How did it become so? I mean, there's there's a guy in it who says, you know, that's our horse, the Irish horse, up yours. <laughs> and this is kind of, I'm just struggling to see how why you think it is that that horses uniquely seem to have this sort of, uh, or command this status with Irish people. Well, one thing that I probably didn't get to explore as much as what I liked in the documentary is 
that very thing of the status of racing in Ireland at, at, at that time. I mean, you look at the statistics, Ireland was a rural country then. It's now an urban country. You know, we've crossed that barrier. Things like Goffs, the horse auctioneers, was opposite the RDS in the heart of Bolt's Bridge in Dublin 4. Mm. There was actually a railway extension to bring the horses into the back of the auction rooms there. Mm. And the, the horse show was sort of this elegant kind of glittering sort of you know place where the elite would go to get the photographs taken from the newspaper it felt almost like that Ireland was a rural country racing as the sort of ultimate country pursuit and that it had a place in people's psyche that maybe it doesn't now even though it's on the TV all the time and you can bet online and Cheltenham's still huge but I think back then it was the one thing that we were good at. Yeah, it's funny. We're probably talking in the one week where it really does get that place back in the cycle. But I agree with you. It's, it's, we've talked about horse racing so much and it's a difficult world to penetrate in the sense that a lot of trainers, a lot of jockeys don't necessarily, um, and I'm generalising to an extent, don't always feel like they have to promote it to the general public. It's something you either understand and absolutely love or you probably don't care too much about if you're a casual sports fan. But you have penetrated it. I mentioned Jump Boys, which you made, which covered the jockeys. Now you've done a documentary which covers the the horses and maybe what we're talking about, how people uh, feel about horses. Have you yourself, do you feel you've gotten to know a little bit more, gotten to understand the uh, horse racing uh, world that is sometimes difficult for people to understand? I think understanding it would be the study of many lives. You know, I, I feel like I've scratched the surface of the most unbelievably deep... I think cricket might be the only other sport that has that level of complexity and richness and, and layers of things that you can understand and not un, and fail to understand. But I suppose that's part of the seduction of it as well, you know, and the fact that you... You've, it does open a little portal into another world. And I did find myself, I was doing a few pickup shots at Nace Racecourse the other day, and I suddenly looked around and went, God, I kind of feel like I'm part of this now, you know what I mean? I like, do, yeah. <laughs> you know? Have you been welcomed in? Oh, no. I'm talking about this as some sort of closed club, you're not allowed to talk to jockeys. Stonecutters. Yeah, which it, it obviously isn't, but you, you have found it quite welcoming. Well, I think so. I think when we did Jump Boys, I, we were in the inner sanctum. So it was almost like we were thrust into the way room on the first day of filming, which is an extraordinary place to be because it's really forbidden zone, you know, particularly when racing's on. You're just not allowed in there. So I was in there in this kind of slightly bumbling kind of Louis through, but it wasn't faux naivety. It was genuine yeah. naivety, you know. But it, it sort of put me in an interesting position where I could ask idiotic questions without feeling too self-conscious about it. And... You know, I remember once or twice the producer wincing when I'd ask Ruby Walls something that he just couldn't, would never be able to ask because he was in racing and you just couldn't ask that question. And it became a bit of an asset, I think, to be able to do that. But certainly, yeah, it's it. I can. I used to find racing very boring. I used to find it hugely uninteresting. When people talked about Cheltenham all the time, I just used to zone out. And really? now, definitely, I just feel that this is something... It's kind of worse. It's it's more than sport. Like I know that's that's a cliche, but it is. It's it's sort of like it's like it, a class system, class uh, sort of uh, what's the word? Uh, I can't think of what the word is right now. It's There's, a sort of microcosm of all strata of society type of thing. It's like David Simon's The Wire. You go there and everything from the most sort of borderline stable hand right up to aristocracy sort of milling around and everybody in between. Like, it is an interesting... Yeah. And it's sort of like... There's a line in the documentary where someone goes, you know, he was a horse trainer, but he was really a farmer. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like these are the elite farmers. Like, these are the guys who are such cool farmers that they've got amazing horses. Can know? we take it back to Arkel? Because we talked about the victory, but from then on, you have to, I guess, continue to build a myth if you're a sports, sports person, almost if you're a horse in this case. Was the myth built largely on the basis that this is a horse that continued to win, crushed Millhouse afterwards in a couple more races, and then retired without the natural, what is usually natural for a sports person, that is the massive decline? Well, that's definitely the case. I mean, Arkel was injured at a very, very young age, I think nine. So, you know, you think, I think Star was 13 when he won his fifth. Um, King George I was lucky enough to be at that race filming actually it was a magnificent occasion but so that yes you don't have and it's a line that didn't make the edit but uh, I thought it was someone talking about you know amazing actors and then they go off the boil and get a bit shitty and you see them in some terrible film and it's kind of the, you know Robert, yeah. Robert De Niro almost yeah. every actor it's so hard not <laughs> to do Gene that Gene Hackman's yeah. the only one that hasn't happened to I think. well our, our horses may be psychologically better equipped to be champions than human beings are I mean there's no question of a horse succumbing to indulgence and complacency and dissolution. I mean, Arkel did drink quite a lot of Guinness, but it was a, you know, it was a nutrition thing. He was a highly functional Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. ultimately, he, you know, what goes up must come down for a horse as well, but it was because of his physical rather than psychological frailties. They're natural champions. 
I don't know if that's the case, actually. Do, because do horses go? I think horses get nervous. I think horses can be anxious. I think horses can find the can feel the pressure. You see a horse freaking out before a race, sweating, and you know people look at it and that's what the parade ring I think is about is people trying to judge the psychological readiness of a horse mm. they know how physically ready they are you know are they are, you know coming up to the moment the tape goes up mm. are they freaking out or are they in their natural kind of zone and I think what Arkel again you're, how much of this is projection or not seems to just enjoy the whole thing massively he was sort of like I suppose that George Best twinkly eyed ridiculously gifted and I don't think it's any coincidence either that he emerged at the same time as your George Bests and your Beatles and your Muhammad Ali's and your John F. Kennedy's, these kind of good-looking, gifted, talented, sort of hugely charismatic figures. Yeah. It's weird to say a horse is one of those, <laughs> but he was sort of the first TV horse. All right, well, the uh, documentary is called Ark of the Legend Lives On. If people didn't catch it on TG Car last night, it's on Channel 4 tonight. 11pm. 11pm on Channel 4. Well, uh, we, we highly recommend it. Luke, thanks so much for coming in. Cheers, thanks for having me. I knew the place. Clough, that he calls me Rabbi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why it's not? Really lo- no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots for much. And then but that, well, that I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Arkell, the legend lives on is the name of that documentary. Great chat with Luke there. Hope you enjoyed that. That is on again at eleven o'clock on Channel Four tonight. We do actually have a clip of the Duchess of Westminster as discussed there and the rather distinctive voice of this woman. He has captured the imagination of people that perhaps are in no way interested in racing. It's rather like we find out a very famous relation discussing him because one does look on him rather you know, as one of the family. <laughs> one does look on him rather as one of the family, all right, Ken? I just yeah. can't do it justice in my voice. Well, the, the Duchess and Arkell had a Clearly, very affectionate relationship. You can see that you see it in the. Do people speak like the Duchess anymore? Anywhere? Uh, I imagine that you in particular you can, strata. You'll find uh, you'll side. find exactly in possibly the island, just a little over to to one side of ours. You, you'll still come across them. Well, the, 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 the <laughs> uh, she, I think, I think though, that person would be seen as something very eccentric in the Aran Islands. I'd say. I don't know how many uh, cigarettes the Duchess smoked, but it sounded like a lot. A lot. Yeah, a lot. That's it from us. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in today. Enjoy the Six Nations, certain Six Nations triumph of Ireland over the weekend. And uh, what am I saying that for you? We've still got second captain's football, but just in case for some reason you overlook second captain's football mm. later. Get the Congo line started. Absolutely. Murph, thank you. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. And thank thanks, you, Karen. Ken. And thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.